We've been running from gender. Mm-hmm. We've been running from gender in this jurisprudence forever. Mm-hmm. We're still running from it. And every single immigration conference I come mm-hmm. in, I say, you've got to define the group in terms of gender. And it's beginning to catch on. I'm Susanna Walters, and welcome to Ask a Feminist, a podcast from Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society. On this podcast, we actually ask feminists about the pressing issues of the day to provide the kind of feminist analysis and context that is often missing in mainstream coverage. On today's episode, we have an interview with Deborah Anker, who is the founder and director of the Harvard Immigration and Refugee Clinic. Obviously, the Trump administration has been seeking to fundamentally alter the asylum system in the U.S., and so we wanted to talk to Deborah because she's been intimately involved with integrating a feminist analysis into that system for over 30 years. The family separation policy is probably the Trump administration's most visible change to the asylum system, but there are others, many of them focused on erasing what feminist gains have been made in U.S. immigration policy. For instance, Jeff Sessions' decision that domestic violence can no longer serve as the grounds for an asylum claim. Deborah is able to address not just what's going on now, but also the history of how we got to this place. She takes us to the story of how feminists reshaped asylum law. You'll get a sense of why, surprisingly, she's still optimistic that the Trump administration's efforts to undermine this progress, as pernicious as they are, ultimately won't succeed. Our interviewer for this conversation is Aziza Ahmed, who is professor of law at Northeastern University and a member of the Science Editorial Board. They had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Aziza Ahmed. I'm a law professor at Northeastern University School of Law, and I'm so happy to be talking to Deborah Anker today as part of the Signs Ask a Feminist series. Deborah, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on this podcast today. Um, My pleasure. Your work has been so instrumental in helping advocates and lawyers acknowledge the complexity that gender brings to the field of immigration and asylum law. Could you tell us a little bit about what drew you to this work? Sure. Well, I was I started work after law school. We we started a law collective <laughs> in Dorchester, a group of us, and it was during the time of school busing, oh. and there was tremendous violence against African American people. There was an African American family that moved into Dorchester and was attacked every single night. An organized group of uh, kids in the neighborhood throwing stones at their house. It's quite amazing to think about that mm-hmm. having happened quite so recently Mm -hmm. here. But yeah, I was a sort of ground level civil rights lawyer at that point. Mm -hmm. And our collective broke up. Mm -hmm. Uh, People went their separate ways. There was a job Mm -hmm. opening in immigration and it sounded very appealing to me, although I knew nothing about it. But I think it was appealing because it connected me to my own my own family's background. Mm-hmm. Um, we were all Holocaust survivors in one way or another. My, my grandparents' family was, uh, a lot of them didn't make it over here. And the reality of the Holocaust was sort of a constant presence in our lives. And so I felt like this was a civil rights issue that I could, I could relate to. Mm-hmm. 
once I got into the work, mm-hmm. I found it very, very compelling because mm-hmm. asylum work is really writing these biographies, mm-hmm. people's biographies, and and putting it in a political and mm-hmm. and cultural context. So mm-hmm. it's it's really sort of fascinating, very fascinating kind of work. I think it also right away made the connection to race for me, mm-hmm. although I don't know that that was generally true that people understood, but mm-hmm. I, I understood the issues of race. Mm-hmm. And race was very important to me. Civil rights was very important to me. So it connected mm-hmm. me both to my own background and mm-hmm. to issues of race. I think I identified very much with the civil rights movement at mm-hmm. that time. Now we're talking about the mid to late 70s. Mm-hmm. And I think I had a hard time connecting to the women's movement, although mm-hmm. I felt sympathetic and a part of it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really feel a part of it because I didn't feel like it really engaged those issues about race. That's interesting. At that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, you know, and I don't know how much of that was my own perceptions and stereotypes that I walked in with mm-hmm. and how much of it was mm-hmm. reality. I think it's very different now. I think feminism mm-hmm. is, is very mm-hmm. conscious about race. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it, it's interesting because I look at the, my, the, my students now um, and I wonder how they do it mm-hmm. because this is a very diff- was a very different environment when I entered this field. We got a major Supreme Court decision, Cardozo-Fonseca, which, which said that U.S. law had to conform to um, international law mm-hmm. on the definition of refugee and mm-hmm. That became very important and made this field so interesting because you were dealing with international law, you were dealing with domestic law, mm-hmm. you were dealing just with people and getting powerful and very detailed mm-hmm. accounts of their of their story and what had happened to them. But the okay. issue of race is interesting. Yeah, how I felt about it then. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why well, I, that was why that was that was happening. Yeah. But it felt it did feel like a white women's movement. Yeah. Once the focus became violence mm-hmm. against women, mm-hmm. I think the women's movement mm-hmm. became much more compelling mm-hmm. and much more compelling for, for me. Mm-hmm. As and, opposed to being purely about sex equality. Yeah, mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to being how many women were on the law faculty at Harvard Law School or, right. you know, how wonderful it was. And it was wonderful yeah. that our dean... Yeah, gave free tampons in the you know in the ladies' right. rooms. And I wonder if for the listeners that aren't as familiar with asylum law, we might just sure. do a little you know the elements necessary sure, sure. to prove. Sure. Um, you know, so you have to be able to prove. You have to mm-hmm. under asylum law, mm-hmm. you have to meet the criteria of the international definition mm-hmm. of refugee, which mm-hmm. was in, which was incorporated into our law uh, directly in 1980. Mm-hmm. And a refugee is someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution for mm-hmm. reasons of race, religion, nationality, mm-hmm. membership in a particular social group, mm-hmm. or political opinion. So you have to show that you have a well-founded fear, mm-hmm. that the harm that the harm that's being directed at you is targeted in mm-hmm. some way. You have to show that so that you have to show that you're some specific mm-hmm. risk. And you have to show that the harm you face rises to the level of persecution, mm-hmm. that you face a serious harm, mm-hmm. and that it's a result of a failure of state protection. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a critical element in mm-hmm. asylum, having mm-hmm. to show that the state has failed. Right. And, and I think one of the things we've come to un- understand about that failure of state protection mm-hmm. is it's not just states being states themselves being the agents of persecution, right. but failing to protect you from mm-hmm. forms of persecution by private actors. I mean, that was fundamental mm-hmm. 
to human rights law that was mm-hmm. fundamental to human rights feminists, mm-hmm. c- conveying that that notion that that states had a responsibility to protect you from uh, harm from private from non-state actors, mm-hmm. um, and then you have to prove that th- there's a connection between the harm that you feel, mm-hmm. you fear, you look. And one of those five grounds. Mm-hmm. So you have to show that nexus to one of the five mm-hmm. grounds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I say it, I realize it's quite complicated. Um, right, yeah. But all of those elements, you know, have to be met. I was curious to hear from you about when you felt like feminism really came to immigration, immigrants' rights work, you know. I, I'm sure in communities themselves. I think I really thank the women's movement mm-hmm. for, for challenging the public-private distinction. That right. was key. And mm-hmm. we learned that from the women's movement, mm-hmm. that private, so quote-unquote, private acts of violence mm-hmm. were of public concern and of human right. rights concern, mm-hmm. were human rights violations. Mm-hmm. That was incredibly important. And became foundational, it seems like, to the types of claim, gender-based asylum it came, claims. It became, yeah, it became very, very foundational. Mm-hmm. For the, for the cases that we brought. And mm-hmm. it, it was really the women's movement who made us mm-hmm. start thinking about mm-hmm. it. We, we would, people would come in and we would interview the man mm-hmm. and find out what his problems were. Mm-hmm. We never thought that what happened to women would rise to the level of persecution or would be considered persecution mm-hmm. by the adjudicators and mm-hmm. by the authorities. Mm-hmm. That was incredibly important. And that Rape could constitute mm-hmm. persecution, mm-hmm. that quote-unquote private acts of violence could mm-hmm. constitute persecution. Mm-hmm. I think we now understand having being forced to leave your child, mm-hmm. right, is mm-hmm. a form of persecution. Mm-hmm. So just connected to this idea about how um, gender-based asylum claims started getting litigated and moving through the system, you have this fascinating article in which you describe, drawing on Gary Bellow's work, the bottom-up approach, that it took, it sounded like, many, many, many cases to get systemic change, which is different from sort of a broad-based sort of policy change or legislative change. I was wondering if you could talk about what that, what it felt like to be doing those cases and trying to create the space to successfully get through a gender-based asylum claim. We did not have a body of law. Yeah. We, we might not even have had one case, mm-hmm. right? And so we began to, we brought, we, we brought these cases. Mm-hmm. Um, these are very compelling cases. We really developed these cases. Mm-hmm. These stu- these clients had long, long mm-hmm. narratives, and we began winning them. Yeah, um, we began winning winning them at the immigration judge level, mm-hmm. at the level of, of at that ground level of adjudication. Mm-hmm. And I think over time we began to change the culture of the immigration court. Right. Even today, mm-hmm. even with everything that that Mr. Sessions has tried to do, mm-hmm. his recent decision mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. Private harm is not persecution, right. and you mm-hmm. can't get perse- you can't make a claim when mm-hmm. it, it's based on gang violence. Mm-hmm. The, the, the most progressive jurisprudence mm-hmm. is coming out of the immigration court. Mm-hmm. I have a treatise on asylum law that mm-hmm. I write every year, and we highlight these decisions of immigration judges. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the decisions do get written down. Mm-hmm. The judge issues a written decision when, when the government is going to appeal the decision. Mm-hmm. They'll write their decision. And there's amazing, amazing progressive decisions being made by mm-hmm. by immigration judges, which is why he wants to shut down the immigration mm-hmm. court system altogether. Mm-hmm. Gradually, I think, and, and we just seized every opportunity mm-hmm. we could. There was a case, it's a famous, for us, famous Third Circuit case, 
involving an Iranian woman who refused mm-hmm. to wear the shadur, the fatin case. The decision was written by Alito mm-hmm. when he was a judge in the, mm-hmm. in the Third Circuit before he was a justice. So he said that she didn't really show that she would be harmed, that, that the harm she would face would rise to the level of persecution because she was a feminist. Mm-hmm. But he said feminism could be a political opinion, mm-hmm. that um, gender could define a particular social group. Mm-hmm. And so we just said, great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we, 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 we took the dicta in that decision, mm-hmm. his discussion about feminism as a political opinion and, and the particular social group ground, and we ran with it. We said, see, we went to court, said, see, judges have acknowledged it. Mm-hmm. I should also say that around this time when the field was developing, the Canadians were very active. Mm-hmm. The Canadians had a very strong feminist community. Mm-hmm. They had a what was considered the best asylum adjudication system. Mm-hmm. There was very progressive jurisprudence. At any rate, a bunch of women in, in their immigration board mm-hmm. came out with these gender-based asylum mm-hmm. guidelines. Mm-hmm. So that was another thing. We didn't have law. We're going to get the government. We're going to get women in the court in the mm-hmm. <laughs> in the government to write gender guidelines, mm-hmm. and then we're going to come and argue the gender guidelines. They're not much. They're sub-regulatory, mm-hmm. but we'll argue them, and then the gender guidelines get cited by the courts, and, mm-hmm. and then we say the gender guidelines you know, have now taken on a normative effect mm-hmm. because they've been cited by the courts. Mm-hmm. But the Canadians really took the lead, and, and we had a we developed a relationship across borders. There were many, many d- different NGOs and law school clinics that were beginning to make these connections across mm-hmm. borders. So we've had an ongoing relationship with mm-hmm. the Canadian Council for Refugees, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. But the Canada has their guidelines, mm-hmm. and we took them and we we refurbished them a little bit mm-hmm. and presented them to the government. Mm-hmm. And you know, those were. The Clinton years, mm-hmm. Clinton did many terrible things to mm-hmm. immigration law, many terrible mm-hmm. things, but this wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. And they embraced them. They came out. And I, I remember the weekend they came out. It came out on a Memorial Day weekend. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was talking to reporters. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. There were women journalists who were really mm-hmm. interested mm-hmm. in our stories. What year took, is this? This is um, 1995. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was Memorial Day weekend that the guidelines mm-hmm. came out. Oh, and I had told all the reporters, all the reporters wanted to speak to the Federation for American Immigration mm-hmm. Reform, the mm-hmm. sort of racist anti-immigrant group mm-hmm. that now is writing the script for Mr. Trump. Mm-hmm. And I said, don't talk to them. They're not experts in the law. They're not mm-hmm. lawyers. They're just advocates for a particular point of view on immigration. Mm-hmm. And these stories came out in the Times, in the Post, and they didn't interview the fair. Oh, good. They did not interview fair. So that was very and no, and there was no negative publicity that ha- that occurred. Mm-hmm. I remember. I just remember Doris Meisner and Phyllis Coven mm-hmm. and the immigration. Service. So this is a story of women in government, mm-hmm. and women as advocates, mm-hmm. and women as journalists. Right, mm-hmm. all combined to sort of tell push this forward. Right. Much later, uh, there was a, a big setback in this this case, uh, Matt Rodi Alvarado, mm-hmm. who was a woman who had fled severe domestic violence in Guatemala. And she her claim was denied. And mm-hmm. the board wrote a just the Board of Immigration Appeals wrote a decision saying mm-hmm. this kind of harm is not really serious harm for, for immigration purposes. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't make she doesn't meet the criteria, and so it was a terrible it was a terrible setback. But we kept asking for a reconsideration mm-hmm. of it, and Janet Reno, 
vacated the decision in Rodi Alvarado. It was one of her last acts. Mm-hmm. She really should be honored more than mm-hmm. she is, mm-hmm. I think. She came into office and she withdrew the board decision mm-hmm. denying finding that being gay mm-hmm. and Harmi's faces of being gay was not a basis for asylum protection. Mm-hmm. She vacated that decision and wrote a different decision mm-hmm. saying that it was. Mm-hmm. Um, she had really established that precedent right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We never had problems with recognizing mm-hmm. LGBT status as a basis for asylum, a particular mm-hmm. social group. And she ended with vacating the Rodi Alvarado mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. So she vacated it. And for, for 10 years, we argued it. They were, mm-hmm. The Attorney General Ashcroft under Bush was trying to, was going to reinstate the decision. We organized, mm-hmm. we wrote an amicus brief on behalf of 186 um, mm-hmm. law professors and NGOs. Mm-hmm. We submitted it in that case. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the attorney general backed off. And, and Janet Reno, when she left office, she there had been proposed gender regulations. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I forgot about that. There were proposed mm-hmm. gender asylum regulations. And she said Rodi Alvarado's case should be redecided in light of those regu- mm-hmm. proposed regulations. Those proposed regulations never got published, dragged on and on and on. They didn't get published. But meanwhile, there were again women in government trying to find a way, a way to... Mm-hmm at least some limited way to allow, allow these cases mm-hmm. to go forward. And they, one of the briefs they submitted actually in the Rodi Alvarado case said women unable to leave relationships mm-hmm. was a basis for asylum protection. And I thought the formulation was very problematic mm-hmm. because it was gender that mm-hmm. defined the particular social group. Why couldn't we say gender defined the particular social group? Well, they could never get consensus in the government from mm-hmm. the enforcement people in the government that, Gender itself could be the basis of mm-hmm. of a particular social group. But they started making that argument, and we took their brief, and we started taking their brief into mm-hmm. court. And we said, by the way, this is the government's position. Mm-hmm. And the trial attorneys in the court would say, that's not our position. I said, mm-hmm. well, you submitted a brief. Mm-hmm. And so the brief became our you know, mm-hmm. evidence of what the government's position was. And eventually, they issued a decision in 2014 that said, Women who are unable to leave a relationship mm. constitutes a particular social group. That's like those are characteristics that you cannot change. Interesting. And I, we from the beginning were saying, whatever, holding our breath because mm-hmm. we thought the analysis was bad. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It wasn't really coherent mm-hmm. in terms of an interpretation of the mm-hmm. refugee definition. Mm-hmm. That we had to say gender itself to find the particular social group because the the refugee definition has different elements in it and has mm-hmm. an element that looks at targeting. Right, mm-hmm. that's the well-founded fear element. That's the element that mm-hmm. looks at harm and mm-hmm. state responsibility. That's the persecution element, mm-hmm. and then there's a there, then there's the grounds. Mm-hmm. And we said, you know, the particularization of the cl- of a mm-hmm. claim will take place at at the beginning. What, mm-hmm. what, what constitutes a well-founded fear, or, or is the harm severe enough? Mm-hmm. Right. But having a big group like gender mm-hmm. was not a problem. In fact, that's what the refugee definition was all mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. The board, our Board of Immigration Appeals had held that um, the particular social group ground should be defined in terms of an immutable characteristic mm-hmm. or it's a characteristic that person cannot change or shouldn't be asked to change. Unable to leave a relationship is not a characteristic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an event. <laughs> but we've been running from gender. Mm-hmm. We've been running from gender in this jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. Forever, mm-hmm. we're still running from, it. and 
Every single immigration conference I come mm-hmm. and I say, you've got to define the group in terms of gender, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of narrowing it and particularizing it. That's the job mm-hmm. of other elements of the refugee definition. And it's beginning to catch on. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing like more and more of these immigration judge decisions that recognize gender itself as the particular social group, right? Mm-hmm. But Sessions withdrew mm-hmm. that decision as a precedent decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what he did last year. Mm-hmm. So he withdraws that precedent, and we and we start pushing a a, yeah. a, a more principled, gender sensitive approach mm-hmm. than the, than that 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 decision itself embodied. What did that more principled? It's recognizing gender that gender itself can be the basis of a claim. I see. Mm-hmm. You don't have to fancy it up with unable mm-hmm. to leave a relation. I mean, th- those are all aspects of a claim. Right. But gender itself is a ground for. For, for asylum, right? Right, yeah. Right, so it's a very interesting moment, mm-hmm. very interesting moment mm-hmm. in time. I mean, he's trying to stop the judges from adjudicating it all. Mm-hmm. Thinking about Jeff Sessions, um, you know, brings us to the present moment in many ways. And so I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about um, the kind of claims, the kind of gendered claims people might be trying to make as they enter the United States. So we have been advancing the notion that uh, resistance to violence Mm -hmm. um, in the home, for example, Mm -hmm. is a form of political opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a wonderful decision that I honor. It's a, a judge from the Ninth Circuit who died recently, Judge Noonan, it was a case of a woman, this was during the Civil War, who was forced into basically sexual and labor bondage by, mm-hmm. by a sergeant in the um, Salvadoran army. Mm-hmm. So she had she was forced to do all his housework mm-hmm. and submit to him sexually. And she fled, and he found that um, her act of flight mm-hmm. was an act of resist, was an expression of political opinion, that mm-hmm. women don't. Mm-hmm. Women, women shouldn't be treated this way. Mm-hmm. I think he read into her those actions mm-hmm. um, a statement of political opinion, mm-hmm. and that was really, really an amazing decision because nobody thought this is back in 1987. Nobody mm-hmm. was thinking in terms of in gender terms, mm-hmm. in terms of the refugee definition. I certainly mm-hmm. wasn't. Mm-hmm. That would so be that a, was very important. We we sort of sort of using the other grounds, political opinion, religion, mm-hmm. um, to make the gender claim. To make stronger. the gender mm-hmm. claim, but but to to run from gender mm-hmm. and fancy it up with these other elements, mm-hmm. which really which really are appropriate inquiries to, for other mm-hmm. elements of the refugee definition, mm-hmm. was wrong. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of how that's developed over time? You know, um, what kind of actions would be that that a woman might take um, would be deemed sort of feminism from a political perspective. So if, for example, you know, escaping the sergeant um, is seen as a political act by lust, a woman. It was called lust hate yeah. by the dissent. He said, couldn't possibly, this is not political, this is private matters. Right. This isn't persecution, it's just an act of lust hate. What yeah. were you asking? I'm sorry. Um, I was asking um, if you had a sense for how over time that idea that w- when women act, it's political, might have developed some boundaries to it. Is it was it largely in the domestic violence context that we it saw was that? In, it was in the domestic violence context a lot because you know pe- the vast majority of people coming to this country now are coming from Central America, and that's mm-hmm. huge. Violence against women is huge, including mm-hmm. domestic violence, mm-hmm. but not just not just in that context. I mean, 
I mean, I'm thinking of a case that we have now pending in court, and uh, I'll try to be, I have to be a little bit vague in the way I describe it, because it's still, especially since it's still pending, but it involved a woman from one of the Northern Triangle countries who um, was like a community organizer. Mm -hmm. What she was trying to do is create alternative activities and and social Mm contexts for kids Mm -hmm. so that they wouldn't be recruited by the gangs. Mm -hmm. And it was caring for the children Mm -hmm. that motivated her, Mm -hmm. right? You know, we formulated that appropriately as a form of political opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, she was a political activist, but it had a very gendered element to it, right? Mm -hmm. She wasn't just doing community organizing. She was trying to help the kids. Mm -hmm. She was motivated by by the Mm -hmm. children and what they needed. But also... It's been established for a while um, in a fairly recent board decision that family constitutes a particular social group. You're persecuted because of your family mm-hmm. relationship. So we've, we've presented arguments, other people have presented arguments, that a woman, for example, who's trying to, who's targeted mm-hmm. because she's keeping her child, she's preventing her kid from being you know, recruited by the gang. Mm -hmm. It's a family, it's being persecuted because of her family relationship with her Mm -hmm. son. Mm -hmm. And we've succeeded in several of those cases. And I mean, we, I mean, collectively Mm -hmm. in the circuit courts, but he's trying to withdraw the precedent that family itself constitutes a particular social group. He's actually proposed that he, that he he? withdraw. Well, now it's bar. Right. That that they can withdraw Mm -hmm. all of the precedent decisions, Mm -hmm. all of the law, that was created over the last 30 years and mm-hmm. start from scratch. Mm-hmm. You know, why bother piecemeal destroying um, <laughs> domestic violence as a basis mm-hmm. for asylum or gang-based claims? This is, this is a real battle we're in now. Mm-hmm. But he's not going to succeed. And I think he's not going to succeed for the... I mean, they hear me. They see that these these unpublished immigration judge decisions are being used over and over again, mm-hmm. presented in different courts, in this kind of kind of guerrilla warfare, this uh, jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. He 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 sees what's going on with it, but I don't think that they're going to um, succeed. I think what's happened to to immigrants is waking up this country. Yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of good good stuff coming out mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. I think people see what's happening to those families and they can't bear it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they and it's, it's humanized. Mm-hmm. And the country has changed. Mm-hmm. The country has changed demographically. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are we are much more a country of, of a country of color. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon we're going to be a majority minority. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know why I'm so optimistic after the gerrymandering case, but at least yeah. uh, I just think things are changing. I just and... think we're think we're changing. Yeah, and I think I think what's so important and doesn't happen enough is we, we don't look at why people are fleeing. Mm-hmm. And but I think when people see those families there, they say, "What is happening mm-hmm. that a society is expelling their children and mm-hmm. families?" Right? Something really terrible is happening mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And I think the truth about Central America, which is absolutely the truth, which every scholar and historian knows, is that U.S. policy created the destabilization that we mm-hmm. now see in the mm-hmm. Northern Triangle. Mm-hmm. The civil wars, we supported mm-hmm. dictators and human rights abusers. Mm-hmm. You know, we gave all that, all that support to, to Guatemala, to El Salvador, mm-hmm. when we were, you know, these were proxy wars for, 
proxy cold wars, mm-hmm. and and we we left those societies devastated. Right. I mean, a genocide. We left behind a genocide, mm-hmm. a coup that the that, that the CIA orchestrated resulted in the elimination of a a popular democratically mm-hmm. elected president in Guatemala, mm-hmm. who was engaged in land reform, and set the stage right after that for the genocide. Mm-hmm. I mean, two hundred thousand people were killed. Mayan mm-hmm. people were killed, mm-hmm. and then. At that moment of devastation, and these are new democracies, you know, mm-hmm. just barely coming up out of the ashes, mm-hmm. we, we say, okay, bye, mm-hmm. bye, and then we t- turn to Mexico and we say, keep those people south of here as mm-hmm. much as possible. We're going to fund you to do that. Mm-hmm. But we didn't come up with a Marshall Plan for mm-hmm. Central America after we made a total mess of it. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about, you know, what 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 the U.S. role has been in the devastation of Central America. Right. And we need to take responsibility for that. How do we understand gender in that context? Or um, I mean, we left a culture of violence. You know, people mm-hmm. talk about a culture of violence in Central mm-hmm. America, and I mean, there's the highest femicide rate mm-hmm. in the world is in. You know, I think Honduras and El Salvador compete for number one. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary levels of violence against mm-hmm. women, and and you know we left a culture we we, mm-hmm. we and and violence sort of became the means that you resolve disputes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems like what you seem to be describing, or one of my big takeaways from this conversation, is really that we can't even get to the conversation about gender um, and feminist activism in the refugee and asylum context without understanding the core institution, the sort of political institutional dynamics that exactly. are happening in the background, what William Barr is doing, what the courts are doing, how right. the decisions are being made and unmade, and the tension that seems to exist oh, between detention. the BIA and and the decisions that are coming out of the lower courts and, and the well, federal and courts. The and, federal courts and, we ha- you know, and we have a president who mm-hmm. is legislating from the executive branch. I right. mean, he's not just legislating from the executive branch. Mm-hmm. He's literally withdrawing. He's he's annihilating statutes and yeah. and putting in his own law. I mean, the the violations of the of the Immigration Act that that are being done by mm-hmm. the administration are just blatant. We have a statute that says, irrespective of status, mm-hmm. irrespective of whether you literally has that language, irrespective of whether you present at a regular border post or, or have entered undocumented, mm-hmm. you have a right to apply for asylum. Right. And he let, says, if you if you if you apply at a border post, we're going to push you back into Mexico. Mm-hmm. If you apply away from a border post and you enter undocumented, we're going to deny you asylum on that basis. Right. He rewrites the statutes. Yeah. But this is very frightening. Yeah, yeah this is. is this is autocracy. This yeah. is not democracy. Right. But well, I said this already. But I think the bulwark against what he's he's doing Bar. what Barr is doing is the immigration court mm-hmm. and the way that the immigration courts you know day after day are hearing these stories mm-hmm. and they're transformed by mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. i mean there are terrible immigration judges there's mm-hmm. tremendous disparities in mm-hmm. in the judges and their mm-hmm. you know the outcomes of asylum cases mm-hmm. in their court but and and in the current moment we're in where we see so many images of women crossing the border with their children and also just, you know, caretakers crossing the border with their kids and, and then the powerful image of the father and the daughter who died. I mean, the idea of family and gender seem to be really striking a, a chord with Americans. What is it about these gendered sort of depictions of um, family and caretaking that we are all so troubled by? I mean, is there something specific about the refugee and asylum context or is it just that 
we should all be troubled by this in any context. And they're here. They're here. They're here. Mm-hmm. It's not a distant image. Mm-hmm. I think they're here. Mm-hmm. And they're among us. Mm-hmm. And there are people that look like them mm-hmm. who, are in a, who are walking the streets, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's this is... When I started this 35 years ago, America looked very different than mm-hmm. it looks today. Mm-hmm. People just, they're faced with it. They're human beings. Mm-hmm. And they understand family. Mm-hmm. And there's the Me Too movement, right? right. People are understanding that, that, that this kind of violence happens. Right. And that it's serious. Right. It's not just, you know, sort of a little, you trip and fall. Right, exactly. And, and hurt your knee. Exactly. Such a deep understanding of violence against women. Mm-hmm. Is coming out of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And so it resonates. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know why I'm feeling so optimistic at this moment. But <laughs> I, I just don't feel like they're going to win. I don't either. I just don't feel like it. I mean, I think there's going to be tremendous setbacks, but I do not think they're going to win. Thanks so much again to Deborah Anker and Aziza Ahmed for taking the time to talk to us about such an important topic. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review. Ask a Feminist is part of a larger project we're doing at Signs called the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project, which is all available for free on our website at signsjournal.org. You can find tons of fabulous free feminist content there, including our short take series, where we offer commentaries on feminist books, most recently Stephanie Land's book, Made. We also have a series called Feminist Frictions, which has essays on controversial topics like trigger warnings and identity politics. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Signs Journal. I'm Susanna Walters. Thanks for listening.